No, it's not. It's not overstated. Cow flagellants. I studied this 20 years ago. Cow flagellants was responsible for about 3% of the methane gas in California. Dougals, I told you that the Coach K conversation was over. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Hello and good morning. What's up, buddy? Just living the dream. Living the dream. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. Uh, I won't. I will not tell you about it. Hey, uh, special shout out to a dear friend whose wedding I missed because of hospital visits. Uh, I'm sorry about that, buddy. It's been a rough you, week for me. You, you've had a had quite a 72 hour stretch here. Yeah, but hey, so. that's not important for the listeners. Let's try and have some fun for them. No, you're hey. here for the people. You're always that here for tr- the people. I try to be, but I really mm-hmm. haven't slept in 48 hours. So I expect some hate mail after this one. <laughs> Why are you going to get hate mail? <laughs> Oh, I want to start off where if you are an organization, a corporation, right, that is publicly traded, what do you want people to do? Uh, you by people, do you mean your shareholders or your non shareholders? You want your non shareholders to become shareholders. Is that not true? And you want your shareholders to purchase more of your stock. Who man, that's pretty broad. Uh, is, is that not true? I don't know that I care about all people. <laughs> like, I don't know that I feel like I need to convince everyone to buy my stock. I only need the capital I need. And maybe I'm thinking too small. Like, I don't want to conquer the world with You're thinking my... inside the box again. Okay. Yeah. So what what is this crazy thought that you're... What's up? I'm here? saying, so generally speaking, you want people to buy your stock. You want your stock to go up. You want to be a valuable company. Unless you are running a movie theater chain, apparently. <laughs> Yeah, so AMC had an interesting week, right? Um, it's the same old Wall Street bets story. Um, stock was way up again. And uh, this is the first time I've ever seen this. Let me find the quote. It said, unrelated to our underlying business or other macro or industry fundamentals, we do not know how long these long-term dynamics will last. Under the circumstances, we caution you against investing in our Class A common stock unless you are prepared to incur the risk of losing all or a substantial portion of your investment. First of all, (laughs) there's so much wrong with this statement. But the fact that they said all, they they basically said our stock is worthless with that. And they also (laughs) said don't don't buy it. And what happens? Stock doubles. Well, I think it came down after that statement, right? This is after they issued shares. So can we talk about the issue of shares a little bit? So I actually like that move. Your job as a CEO, obviously not you, I expect you to be the next CEO of AMC Dougals, but you're not there yet, is uh, to be smart with your capital allocation. And if your stock is crazy overvalued, you might as well raise cash with that. So they issued, um, I don't have it in front of me, was it? nine billion they were trying to raise nine billion dollars yeah 
So great. If if the market fundamentals are insane, go get some money and spend that money in a way that can in this case, hopefully elongate your your worthless business as they seem to think it is. Like sorry, that one point where they say basically don't buy our stock and then they say you'll lose all of your capital. That <laughs> <laughs> how do you say that how does it get past the pr team like you can say we think our stock's overvalued and you may lose a substantial portion i'm perfectly fine with that do never say all oh, that says we're going bankrupt <laughs> well i mean that but that's literally what they said a few months ago was we are going bankrupt like before this whole thing started they said we are going bankrupt we do not have enough cash to run our business and well, the they just got nine billion dollars exactly so they so they come out they say don't have the money things are going to the they're going south we're done the response to that was people said let's let's get in let's buy that stock right yeah thing goes to the moon they issue stock to raise more money and they say you know how a few months ago we said like this thing wasn't worth anything well i'm gonna double down <laughs> and i'm gonna say i implore you to not purchase the stock that we were issuing <laughs> <laughs> well so that's the other thing and i don't know if this should be applauded or I, I really don't know this is a situation like i have never seen but they issued nine billion dollars worth of stock and at the i think it was in the same release that they said our stock is worthless don't buy it is that to be applauded do we appreciate the honesty or is that a little insane it like it's kind of like playing hard to get like don't don't buy the stock that'll make people buy more of the stock so we can issue more of the stock and we might get through it yeah i don't know like i'm not is this a it's like so you're telling me you don't want to go to the movie theater with me uh we can't have a date Diggles. we can't um, not to amc <laughs> if i bought a ticket to an to an amc movie theater i can't guarantee that it'll exist when i get there let alone purchasing the stock of this this is a little bit of speculation, but I, I also believe they're trying to be friendly to the retail shareholders. Um, mm. And I saw an article that said, if you pledge, you don't have to like prove that you're a shareholder, but if you claim you're a shareholder, you get free popcorn. How cool is that? Is, do you get free? Is there, is there such a thing <laughs> as free popcorn? <laughs> I, I saw this online from a reputable source. So now I'm going to AMC theater and claiming to be a shareholder to try and get my free popcorn. <laughs> there you go. Yes, you are. You're or I'll buy like one one thousandth of a share on Robinhood, walk in, <laughs> drop it down, and get, save $7. You, you know, what's interesting is, uh, so disclosure, not investment advice, but last year, you know, when things went south, um, and I was looking at all the different industries I want to dive into my in my non-model portfolio, movie theaters is one of them. And so I looked at the books of uh, Cinemark and AMC and I was like, this AMC thing is not, that is like no bueno. Yeah. Um, so I bought into Cinemark. So I own Cinemark shares and not AMC. And the other day I was like, do I wish I'd bought AMC? And I landed it. No, like just absolutely no, because it wouldn't have made any sense. Like, and I would have hated my brain for it, but I'm kind of curious as to whether or not I would have enjoyed being along this ride. No, but this is a process outcome conversation and the outcome would have been better, but the process would have been wrong. So yeah, I don't exactly. think you would have enjoyed it. Like, yeah, it, it's rewarding people 
for mania or as you like to call it hyenas rather than like true business fundamentals and i don't think you can at least me and you i i mean there might be other people that actually could can enjoy that but you and i are too process oriented and and actually basing investing based on a, a story or fundamentals uh that i don't think we would get enjoyment from this no yeah i, I think i think you're right i think you're right uh, yeah I'm I'm glad I didn't buy that thing, but especially because I mean, and according to their statement, they're glad I didn't buy it as well. <laughs> no, they they would have been happy for the money a year ago. It's just now they don't want to give money. Yeah, that's. <laughs> oh it's truly crazy. The AMC thing is the craziest. You know what else is crazy? I don't. How uh, Coach K had to follow Roy Williams out the door. Because he's never been a true trendsetter, and he can't handle the spotlight without oh, good dude, old Roy. You're, why, you're just mean. Do you have anything to say to your your first love, I, Coach K? I, I want to. Here's the. Here's what I I desperately hope happens. I hope this team comes out next year with like the gumption and just crushes the season. So he can go out on top because, I mean, so what happened last year with Duke? What, what happened, what happened last, year? last year? How well did they do in the tournament? <laughs> <laughs> okay, for those who don't know, let's reset a little. Uh, we're talking about Duke basketball. Uh, and last year they missed the tourney. Uh, I believe for the second time in uh, Coach K's career at Duke. The first time he faked a back injury, if I remember correctly, Dougals. <laughs> season wasn't going well he, he faked a back injury this time i don't know what is i, I think it was COVID. oh it's like oh my players aren't prepared um doesn't matter that i have more talent than almost anyone uh i'm playing against so we couldn't make the tourney so uh coach k retired this week actually the thing i want to talk about that's a little uh i'll stop joking around um clearly a great career five national titles um you know, I'm a Carolina fan, and the thing that you like about Duke, if you can say it that way, is uh, they've been an excellent program. And like when when rivalries are at their best, it's because you have excellence going against excellence, right? So I think there's yep. a respect there. the The interesting thing long ago, this is like episode three. We talked about Jim Harbaugh, Michigan football, how basically he they put it they cut his pay in half, and we talked about like the psychological. Uh, impact of that. What's just so interesting when you think about Coach K and uh, other people that have retired recently, Roy Williams, obviously, uh, a chief competitor of his, retired just months ago. Um, Coach K is doing the farewell tour thing, right? He's doing the like Kobe Bryant thing. And so it's interesting how different people handle this, like, I'm going away. You know, it, even in the office, it can be the the big retirement party or the sneak out the back door. Uh, there's no right or wrong, but it's interesting. Like I imagine he could be just doing that because he likes the farewell. He could be doing it because he thinks there's a competitive advantage there. Like you said, he could be like going into these games and being like, listen, this is the last time I ever get to do this. And I want you guys to work harder for that ultimate goal. Like, I think that's the most positive light I can think about uh, potentially doing it this way. But do you have any thoughts? Were you surprised by um, the Coach K news? 
uh, the fact that he's 98 years old or whatever he is, <laughs> it should make it not as surprising. Um, but yeah, but I was surprised. I mean, and and partially because they didn't do well. I'm just going to say they didn't do well in the tournament um, this past year. Um, that it, And maybe that's part of the reason. Like, I wonder if he's being pushed out. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't I didn't expect that to come through. Yeah, I mean, he's not being pushed out. Um, I think it's pretty clear on that. Duke basketball without Coach K is uh, is not Duke basketball. A mid tier program. I mean, it's it's nothing like it is with him. So, very uh, interesting well, news. I I can't wait to uh, continue this conversation after their first round, round loss in the tourney next year. Diggles. Um, we'll follow up then. Anyway, back to the <laughs> investing world. So we got some we got some listener mail before we hop into the fishbowl. Got some listener mail here, and it's from our boy Barrett. He was reacting to uh, the article that we talked about that was discussing um, investment, right? A corporate investment and demand. And what he what he said was that it's interesting that the S and P five hundred um, had so much had so many uh, stock buybacks last year, right? Over half a trillion dollars compared to over a little bit over a hundred billion dollars in 2009 and he brings up 2009 because he's saying like that's coming out of the last like crisis so if you imagine that we're coming out of the last crisis there's actually a lot more money that's being spent but it's being spent on corporate stock not an investment um and the the question is like well why buybacks like if you have the money to spend why buybacks versus capex uh, yeah. And and what do we think about that? So that was that was the the first question uh, that he raised. So when we talk about raw dollar figures, the S and P's up three times ish uh, where it was in two thousand nine. So when you throw out those raw dollar numbers of what was it a hundred billion versus a half a trillion? Yep. So so that's call that call up five four, times four to five first, yep. three times. So if you just hear the raw numbers, it sounds more drastic than I think it actually is because the ma- mark the average market capitalization of those companies has increased significantly during that times. I think buybacks have a bad perception, and I think uh, there's some politics in there. But I talked about capital allocation with the AMC executive team and how they issued shares when they felt like their stock was overvalued. A buyback is the opposite of that. You're taking shares out of the public markets, right? And I think that that is something that should be used as a capital allocation tool when you feel that your uh, the equity in your company is undervalued. Now, where The question of why I think is more difficult, but the concern I have with this is we've detailed on this show almost every week that most U.S. equities are in bubble territory or getting close. They're overpriced. So that would be the fundamental that I have a hard time understanding. I think this goes to Barrett's question, right? He's saying you see demand picking up and there's a lack of capex spending because there's a lack of trust that this that the demand for your goods is going to continue and so maybe that's the heart of his question and if so i completely agree with the premise if there's true demand shortages uh let's neglect the supply chain challenges that could be impacting the business that might make it hard to uh, do capex spending for every company 
um, and your stock is overpriced, then CapEx is a no-brainer. I think that's where you should be spending your money. But that doesn't appear to be happening. It's a strange dynamic, I think, in that regard. Because in 2009, you're at the, no one knows this, right? But you're at the bottom of the market. Yeah. Um, in 2020, well, you're not. Like, we, we, don't, we, we can't say you're, you're, uh, you're not at the top of the market, but you're not at the bottom. Like, you're definitely not at the bottom. Right. And it, another thing that's happening. So CEOs are just as bad investors as like your average retail investor. And what happens is they're, they're going in 2009, it would be really hard to have the conviction, even though you probably know your stock is undervalued to be there's uncertainty ahead. So it's really hard to be like, instead of having this cash on hand to maybe pay our employees in three years, like we're buying back stock. It's really tough to have that conviction. So some of that is going on in 2009 and today. Today, they're like, hey, for the past 10 years, our stock just goes up. Of course, we're going to buy more. That's going to be a, a good decision. It's much easier to sell to your uh, board members because the recent past is rosy. So that's another dynamic that's happening here is CEOs are just not great capital allocators on average. But that is what they do. Yeah, true. Like a CEO is a capital allocator. I, I mean, that's that is I don't know, half your job, effectively. That uh, doesn't mean you're good at it, though. No, most CEOs are bad. Well, hey, hey, most CEOs struggle with capital allocation. Don't just don't just say most CEOs are bad. I mean, most companies don't do well. <laughs> so <laughs> it's wow. I thought I was going to be the negative one today. This article. Um, let's. Uh, I want to make sure we fully answer Barrett's question, but. Oh man, Dougals, I was out because because I was supposed to have a wedding this weekend and I was out wedding shopping. You're supposed right? to go to a wedding. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm already married. Good point. Uh, I was supposed to go to a wedding. And this article was jumping out at me. So I'm in the mall for the first time in a year and I'm looking at cocktail attire, like suits, sport coats, that sort of stuff. Dougals is rolling his eyes. Isn't that the right term? Cocktail attire? I don't know what that is. That's what the wedding like. Are you in the Great Gatsby? Said. That's what the wedding invitation said. So it's got to be cool, all right. And <laughs> I'm walking into these places that I used to buy that sort of attire, you know, three years ago, and they have like yep. they have. <laughs> that's a funny joke. They have like joggers and stuff, man. So I was thinking about your supply chain because it's like, no, what happened? And you're business investment and you're planning for the future that all kind of tie into this article, this belief cycle. And I was going, these companies six months ago, didn't think that the pandemic was going to be slowing down so significantly that people would be going and buying suits. They thought people would be working from home forever and be wearing freaking sweatpants. And I don't know if this is an isolated incident or if anyone else has seen that, but it was like, it was hilarious. It was like, I don't want any of this stuff. Like I'm going into the office and hopefully I'm like going out to see friends. I I'm done with my sweatpants phase and I still have sweatpants in my closet. Like I don't need sweatpants. It was fascinating. And I, <laughs> I think, I they think missed, they're related. I think yeah. they missed on it. I think it's a, it's a significant misstep, I think, but it's, but it's an easy one. Right. And also I'm going to go a little bit further into the skeptical drawer. Um, I, when I think most CEOs, 
also probably think more about their pocketbooks than they do about the long-term interest of their organization. And capbacks okay. versus stock buybacks is at the most superficial level, at least, is the difference in investing in your own personal wealth, assuming that you have equity in your company, versus investing yeah. in the future of the company. And significant uh, price targets. So uh, that's a really good point because executive compensation has sifted so much to equity and stock options and um, long-term incentive comp and everything else that there's uh, definitely a greater direct tie. And so one of the ways, if if you get some huge bonus, if your stock price reaches 50 bucks a share and you're currently at 40, well, hey, if you can take 20% of your uh, outstanding shares out of uh, circulation, that helps significantly drive the price up. So uh, yeah, really good point there. Mm. I don't know, that's my take, skepticism. Keep the listener mail right. coming, folks. Uh, on Twitter at Skippy Doogles and Skippy Doogles at gmail.com. We always love it. Thank you for sending that in. Love it, love it, love it. Can I dive into the fishbowl for a second to, to hit on some, uh, some data? Please. So there's this article from A Wealth of Common Sense uh, that, is, that covers 200 plus years of asset class returns. So Ben Carlson. He, he looks at the returns of stocks, bonds, cash, and commodities over the last couple hundred years and just goes through some data. So I think it's worth a read. So go read it. But what I really want to hit on right now, I want to test your knowledge. Uh, if you go decade by decade, so a, a decade, an example of a decade is like 1900 through 1909, right? Just to, So that's it's, it's not any rolling 10-year period, but it's just like that is a decade because I know Thank you, you don't know what a decade is. Yeah, the, the, the example of decade, I really needed that. <laughs> so you're not good with understanding what a decade is. Um, so if you go from 1800 through the end of 2019 as that full time period, what do you think for stocks was the best performing decade looking at um, average annual returns? Uh, the 30s. You think the 1930s was the best performing? No, decade? sorry. How about the 20s? <laughs> the, the, yes. Like, <laughs> I choose the Great Depression. <laughs> do you see what I did there? Really kept keeping you on your toes. Um, that's incorrect, but it was close, actually. So the best performing decade was the 1950s. Um, so it was the yeah, post-war okay. um, area, which averaged 16.67% uh, per year. They're almost hanging with the Skippy portfolio with that. They're trying. They're trying. But you they're can't trying. touch that. You're MC <laughs> Hammer. Uh the uh, the 1920s actually was the this is the second though so you yeah. were close 15.87 um, percent from 1920 to 1929 so you were close what do you think was the worst performing that was my first guess the 30s I that also was... feel like the 1820s were pretty rough and uh, maybe the 1870s so you're absolutely wrong with the 1820s by the way <laughs> I can't believe you can't believe you made that error um actually it was 2000 to 2009 was the worst so negative 3.42 percent so during fr during that period you have both <laughs> you have 2000 through 2002 garbage yeah and you have you know the, yeah. the two, that end of 2007 to uh, 2009 period so that was the worst uh it was negative average annual returns uh, the 1930s had 1.6 percent on average you you did something yeah so gosh this is so timing based i i see why you defined a decade 
because the cycles it's where they fall and yeah you're exactly. so right with the 2000s you got basically two dips that's why the 2010s look pretty good because uh, you took that dip out at the la end of the last decade um what what happened with commodity prices there anything interesting yeah well, actually yeah the the interesting thing with commodities is they just lose money like is the <laughs> yeah i i was reading this and i was like yeah i made some pretty i made bets <laughs> <laughs> like that on average suck. Um, but yeah, commodity prices. So the data there doesn't go all the way back to 1800s. It goes back to the 1920s. But generally speaking, let me see here. Uh, of the, whatever that is, nine to 10 decades, seven of them have average negative returns. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it wow. just, yeah, it's a, it's pretty, it's pretty not, not positive. Um, cash, I thought was pretty fascinating to look at as well. Um, when it performed well, like there was, and I do not know how good this data is, right? Like, to be honest, but um, the 1840s, apparently, like, no matter what you did, like, awesome. I don't know if it was gold rush or what, but so in the 1840s, stocks, according to this data, 10.82% per year on average, bonds, 10.75%, and cash, 7.94%. So it's just like, you just do anything. If you just have money and do anything with it, during that decade glory what's his definition of cash i think it's a savings rate yeah okay yeah that no i i believe that and these um, are real returns um after inflation pretty sure okay so there's that anyway i thought it was some some interesting data i don't know what you learn from looking at the 1810s i don't know no you definitely learn things the other thing i think is interesting we didn't talk about bonds with that but um people usually think that stocks are over a long period of time like almost always a, a superior investment to bonds and that's not true there's like 40 year periods where bonds have outperformed stocks um uh, i don't predict predict that for the next 40 years with where bond rates are um but it's i think that's an important element of your portfolio that shouldn't be neglected is at least having a little bit of the free lunch that comes with the diversification of bonds although Dougal's, i don't think that's a Dougal's principle. No, I'm not getting into. I don't like to play with debt of any sort, whether I'm <laughs> buying it or having it. But it it is going to be. I think bonds will be fascinating over the next few decades because you've got from the early 1980s. This is to the point you're 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 making, right? From the early 1980s, when you had crazy interest rates, you've had, yeah. had interest rates basically going to zero. What happens with bonds when interest rates go down? Right, they go up. Flip but now, where, like, where do bonds go? I don't know how to how you'd even think about playing the bond market. Yeah, over over the long term, like over a twenty year period, like yeah, I don't know. I mean, you maybe think just like the oh, mean reversion aspect of it all would mean that twenty years from now we probably have higher rates than we have now. But uh, it's tough to predict. The world has become so addicted to low interest rates because debt drives growth. That I don't know if that's like a interest rates stay low until. Uh, the modern world economies explode and like have to start again or or what? I think interest rates are going to have to aggressively get increased. I don't know if they will, but I think they'll have to if we want to have an economy. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't around for like the Reagan, Paul Volcker years, right? And I know that wasn't an easy thing to do. Um, 
to battle inflation and everything else, like to get interest rates to the point where I think they were as high as 17%. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like the political climate today, regardless of who is in office, I mean, our previous administration basically would tell the Fed to do whatever they wanted to do to enhance growth in the economy. This administration doesn't do it so like overtly, but they still want $6 trillion spending packages. I mean, I, I just feel like no one, I feel like when you take interest rates to 17%, you're saying we're taking short-term pain for long-term gain. And I don't feel like politicians think like that anymore. Am I just skeptical and naive? Is that, who's going to be willing think, to do that? I think for the majority, you're probably right. I think Biden does think that way. So, I mean, because the things the things that he wants to do with the six trillion is investing in the long term. Like that's what he wants to do. Now he has to make sure that we have a country in the long term in order because you're now in the a ridiculous deficit, right? And in order for him to be able to have that amount of money, we have to have inflation because our other, otherwise we won't be able to pay it off. So like, you have to make future dollars yeah. Um, yeah. worth worth a bit less. But in order for you, us to be able to have that amount of inflation and survive we have to have higher interest rates like it, it won't it won't work otherwise everything will fall apart we'll see all i know is we're, we're playing is, a tricky game yeah yeah like this is one of the things that i think will be most interesting to watch in say the next 15 years because i don't know how this plays out and i don't know if 15 years ago you would have predicted uh that interest rates followed their current course you, you wouldn't have because you couldn't have predicted the um recessions coming there like no one predicted well very few predicted 2007 2008 but that's where i love in a way high interest rates because um you have you have more tools at your disposal when the economy falls apart and right now there's just very limited tools for us it it, it also it provides a level of constraint that doesn't exist as much right now, right? You can't have all these zombie companies running around, or you can't say, "Well, let's just let's just issue debt and get do more of this thing." Like I, I think like you have to be more sophisticated as a capital allocator, as a CEO, in a world where there are interest rates as well. And I, I, I would applaud that. I mean, we we should have to think, right, as a um, as a country. And so I, I would love to see that world. Now, seventeen percent. I'm not talking about that, but like yeah. let's get like a few percentages on there. Well, and from the investor side of the house, um, just like, let's just talk retail investors. The cool thing about that is it makes our lives significantly easier. Like, can you imagine if you could just throw cash in a um, basic savings account and say like make 5%, what that enables you to do with your personal ca capital allocation? That world seems to have disappeared, but if it ever comes back, uh, the possibilities are pretty fun in terms mm -hmm. of how you manage your capital. We have we have our cash sitting in an account that uh that pays 0.3% and you don't know how excited I was to find that. Uh there's for the listeners uh I I don't even have to give this disclaimer cuz I don't consider this investment advice. There's a service called Max My Interest. Um if you want to check it out and Dougal's, I don't know if you've heard of this but you sound like the right clientele. So basically they'll have you open up like five different accounts with companies that typically are competing for the top rates and then i think it's apis on the back end they'll whenever whatever interest rate is greatest they check it daily 
they will throw your cash there. So you always get the maximum rate among these accounts you have. It's a pretty cool service. That sounds like something I don't trust. <laughs> All right. What's in your fishbowl? Well, I think we should uh, tie up this uh, vaccine lottery we talked about like three episodes back. So now, um, gosh, it started with Ohio. Off the top of my head, I think there's five other states doing it now. I know California's doing it. Um, New Mexico is doing it. Colorado's doing it. Uh, and there's more. There's definitely more. So we talked when I was telling you, when I was asking if you were a governor, what your approach might be. Um, we talked about how we'd structure that. I think California ended up kind of more along my line of thinking, but I applaud it all because it's, it seems to be getting more people to get vaccinated. So California seems to have like a bunch more prizes in the range of $50,000. So your chances of winning seem to improve. Um, Colorado, Ohio are basically the five $1 million drawings. New Mexico did the flip side. New Mexico did one $5 million drawing. So they just said, it's a ton of money, but only one person gets rewarded. And I know you have a story about vaccine rewards that you love, Douglas. What, getting a cow? Yeah. Tell yeah, our I, people I about think, the cow. I, I think that's the ultimate. Like, you get a vaccine, you get a cow. I can't remember what country that was. Was that Thailand? <laughs> I believe so. Yeah, I think I think it was. You, go, you come get your vaccination, and we will provide you with a cow. right? I, I think it shows the... Um, the difference in like value of goods in different places. Um, I, Cause what, what it made me really curious about was like, how valuable is a cow over there? Like that's a, that must be like a really valuable thing. If Ohio's like get a million dollars and Thailand <laughs> says you get a cow, <laughs> you get a cow. Let's figure out the, the true price of a cow in Thailand. My quick Googling, this is totally confirmation bias. I'm sure. Uh, this says a young cow is worth around three hundred nineteen dollars in Thailand. Yeah, no, no, that, that's right. I'm, I'm looking at that as well. Three hundred eighteen dollars and seventy eight cents. And and here here's <laughs> the quote. Give us seventy eight cents. Here here's the, here's the quote for the uh, that came from the district that was providing this. The villagers love cows. That's that's the that's the justification for this. Like hey, just give give the people what they want. Hell yeah. I, I fully support that. That's a good theory. Let's talk about cows, though, uh, from an investing framework. Cows are brilliant. Like, it's a quality investment that basically pays dividends long term. Think of all the milk. Think of the potentially, uh, I don't know how long cows live, but at some point you get some meat out of that thing. You might have offspring. Like, that's a lot more than $319. Oh, that's thinking short term, though. Here's the issue with cows. Do you know what the issue with cows is? Uh, they smell the flagellants. No, yes. that's greatly overstated. No, it's not. It's not overstated. Cow flagellants. <laughs> I studied this 20 years ago. Cow flagellants was responsible for about 3% of the methane gas in California. Dougals, I told you that the Coach K conversation was over. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what to do with that. I can't. I just can't. All right. So... There's a small town in Switzerland uh, that my family spent some time at and uh, really basic cottages, super cool, up high on a mountain. How do they heat their homes, Dougals? You got any ideas? No, I don't. 
they build like this little cow barn basically at floor one and they kind of there's some room to roam but basically that's where the cows hang out like 98 percent of the time and that the heat from the cow and maybe the flatulence i don't know basically keeps the entire cottage the second floor warm in like through the winter and like crazy snowstorms and everything else how about that as a use of cow human ingenuity like isn't that a cool idea humans are like so creative we we solve problems in the most creative ways and then sometimes we're just dumb but but most of the time we solve some interesting problems i mean a lot of times we're done the thing about thailand i don't think you need that warming uh necessarily but in colder (laughs) environments man if you're giving away a cow and that's basically your hvac system and it gives you your milk and potentially it gives you some offspring and some food like that's freaking solving world poverty right there man i just want to be in the room where someone's like we are going to freeze this winter how do we solve this and and then the the other family member goes okay hear me out (laughs) dude when nessie farts no, think about it the other way. Can you imagine if you had been like, you know, decades, as long as you can remember that every time winter comes around, you're like freezing in your little tent and trying to keep a fire going and stuff. And then you start, I assume you just like start sleeping as close to the cow as possible because you see that like the snow is melting around the the cow. I, I don't know how this works, but I think that's a land, that's a breakthrough invention right there. All right, I, I'm I'm going back into the fishbowl just to just to Good. to, Good. to get us somewhere. Um, so NFTs, right? I was uh, I was just thinking. I think as many people may have that I was like this NFT thing. I think is kind of well, one, it's just fascinating as a just it's another thing, right? That's uh, that's bubbling up, right? And at least a couple months ago. And I was like, this actually seems like it could be a thing that where artists can make solid money. Like it's te- it's a technological revolution that will um, enable and empower a certain class of citizen, right? Artistry. Really, really cool. There's this article by Kimberly, Kimberly Parker. Um, it's called Most Artists Are Not Making Money Off NFTs. And here are some graphs to prove it. First of all, can we just talk about the, the title of that article? <laughs> like that's giving away your punchline, like right, right from the beginning. <laughs> Um, listen i applaud that everything's clickbait these days that has like really sensationalized headline and then the outcome is something really basic so she just (laughs) tells it straight man crushes it crushes it um so in this article i'm gonna give a few facts from it that i found maybe interesting Uh, so one uh, she tapped into the api of uh, OpenSea, which uh, apparently is just one of the uh, nft it's a big one i think one of the most popular yeah cool um so the first stat is almost 70%, 67.6% of sales have not had a secondary sale, meaning the thing was sold the first time. Because part of the the wonder uh, the, or the potential of NFTs is um, this thing that I create will have its digital stamp on it and it can be sold in perpetuity and I'll have licensing dollars for the rest of my life. I mean, I'm just going to bring some logic to this conversation. I hope you don't mind. NFTs have been hot like since March. So like, you know, Picasso's didn't turn over every six months. We need a chill on that particular stat, I think. <laughs> fair. I'll, I'll say that fair. Um, so that's one. Second is in looking at the amount of the sales. So what percent of sales do you think went for less than 
Ooh, this is an interesting one. Um, gosh. So I think this is driven by exponential an exponential curve, meaning the headlines come from the thing that sells for sixty nine million, and like that's barely happening. Yeah. But Charlie those are the finger. artists that are making yeah. money. Um, yeah. yeah, the Charlie bit my finger. That was only like seven hundred k, I think, or something like that. Seven hundred k. Which, yeah. hey, listen, if there's an NFT that I am interested in, it might be Charlie bit my finger. It's way better than some of the other stuff I've seen. Skippy bit uh, my finger? Yeah. Man, I don't know. I I would think that that... I'll tell you the little bit of browsing I've done, I've been shocked at how how few is in that lower price range. So I'm going to say 20%. 53.6%. Okay. So Good, that's more, more logical. Yeah. Yeah. So the majority right are in the lower price range and then the the most interesting piece was that when you look at and this takes back to uh something you brought up about coinbase and their fees right yeah. is if you look at what happens after fees according to this data it's like it basically wipes everything out so for 100 dollars, be self-selling for 100 dollars, you can expect to have 72.5 percent to 157.5 percent of the sale deducted by fees so on average, right, that's a little over 100%. So you're just going to lose 50 cents. If you sell something for $100, on average, you're going to lose 50 cents. I can shed a little light on this. So this is all based on uh, Ethereum. And exactly, Ethereum's network is undersupplied. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. But there's way more traffic in Ethereum than basically they thought there would be or it was originally designed for i think so they're making changes in the next couple months that increases capacity by a million times so they'll be able to handle the same transactions as like the visa network coming up in the very near future but all these well most of this crypto stuff the fee is tied to like the, uh, think of it as the mining fee. It's tied to the price of the object. So Bitcoin's the easiest one here, where the greater the price of Bitcoin, the more people are willing to spend to mine it with electricity and computing costs, and therefore the mining fees also increase. Um, and that's happening on the Ethereum network too. So I think this is a lot of those really high fee doogles are based on the fact that there's limited capacity in the system right now, and potentially a year down the line those fees could drop significantly i've told you i've tried to do some basic things behind the scenes and i forget if i've even sent you screenshots you know like at one point i was trying to sell a 100 bucks or something and the fee associated with that would have been 400 dollars. like there's just not enough capacity in the system uh so maybe that story changes soon but if yeah, you're sure uh, it could change over time if you're an average artist who thought you might be able to sell 50 things at 200 bucks a pop right now, you're not seeing that come true. I mean, that hypothesis is just not happening unless you're selling something for a million bucks, like, or Charlie bit my finger. If you sell it for 700 K, then you pay a ridiculous fee. You may even pay like 500 bucks or like maybe even a thousand bucks or more on that, but it's not the majority of as as a percentage. Yeah. So I, I found this data just to be interesting for early days. I don't think it's a the the what the article like where it kind of landed was in a place that was like this is not a thing that artists can 
can rely upon. I think it's that's way too big of a, a jump because we're so early. But I still think the data is interesting to look at um, for folks right now. So I found it to be interesting. So isn't isn't most art like a again kind of an exponential game? Like the top artists make crazy money. It, I mean, this is true with people who write books like as that. well, right? Everything yeah. is like that. So I th- I don't see that principle changing. So when people the when NTS first were hot, it was like, oh, this is a way for your average artist to make a living through art. I don't know that your average artist typically, even in like a, a free marketplace with no friction, is supported with enough demand to make an amazing living. Like I think just the dynamics of the marketplace aren't gonna support that. And NTFs, as cool as they are, are still limited by the basic dynamics of the marketplace. I, I'd even go one step further, and this might be controversial to some, but the economy isn't like capitalism isn't built to be that way. Yes. Like it's it's a system through which, like as much as we want to say that we can democratize whatever xyz it's built such that there are people a a chosen few called the one percent that'll have the majority like that that's that's how the system is kind of designed for now we don't have a pure capitalist society right it's a mixed economy and so therefore i think we can do a lot more as we've discussed like around making things more equal and more equitable but the entire system is built that way and so yeah i I think that i think that's it's going to be true speaking of coinbase though your lobbying worked, man. You're getting your Doge on the Coinbase. The, the Doge is on. And uh, man, it's so crazy because Coinbase went from like hating on this uh, as a, like it's a joke and it has no real function. We would never put it on our platform to now I was getting like advertisements this week outside of Coinbase being like, oh, go get some Doge on Coinbase and we're giving away, you know, to people that buy Doge and everything else. It's just funny to watch businesses kind of, I want to say sacrifice their values for capital gains, but I don't really mean it. I mean, it's just funny to watch the story change, right? Uh, It's one of those like, we'll never do this, but if we do, we're going to shove it down your throat. (laughs) Well, and if we do it, we're going to do it to make a buck. Like we're not, uh, uh, but that's a, there's a lesson here. Doge started as a joke. It still is a joke to many, but it's so popular now. I mean, it's a top 10 coin. And among the psyche of your average millennial, like they might know about Bitcoin and Doge. And that is a crazy, crazy world because one was a complete joke. I mean, just a complete joke, but it caught fire in society and became a thing. People are a wondrous thing. What else you got? Uh, well, just a while we're talking crypto, uh, uh, update for the listeners on my uh, crypto indexing. Um, I did build the APIs personally, didn't really like it, and figured out that there's a couple good competitors out there. So um, I found a way to purchase. Uh, it's called Crypto Twenty, and um, if there's any interest, I can give the listeners a breakdown in a future episode, but it's pretty rad. Basically, rebounds weekly and uh, takes the top 20 coins. Um, it's all based on like quantitative analysis in terms of their rebalance strategy. And 
um, it's they basically take all the other tokens and create their own t token. So not investment advice, very small percentage of my portfolio, but um, I've had a lot of fun with that recently because it's just like, it's such cool technology. And there are very few like true index funds out there. Um, but this one is is really cool. I've enjoyed following it. It's a company out of South Africa. I love like the uh, like the little mini adventures into other worlds, um, like other investment worlds. Yeah, there's just so much to learn, man. It, you know, you were talking about commodities and you're like, in retrospect, your commodity purchases earlier this year. I just think of that as a fun learning experience. Like it, it's so cool because there is having skin in the game. I've done a lot of analysis, like in the business world about proving how profitable it can be to make people have skin in the game. When you're talking about uh, like basically partnerships, B2B partnerships, right? A lot of times people sign the paperwork and it doesn't really go anywhere until both parties have formal skin in the game. And so we worked through some stuff to prove that our partners were willing to take that journey with us and put skin in the game. But in the investing space, like that's, you know, the, the lotto portfolios, I think Adam called it or, uh, the speculative portfolio or whatever, the, those little side bets that get skin in the game, um, often are great learning experiences. They are. And, and intellectually, like, take me, me personally, right, into just worlds I wouldn't have explored otherwise. Like, the fact that I, uh, that I have small investments in, like, copper companies, uranium companies, right, it makes me then start to look more at, like, clean energy and nuclear. And, like, I just, I'm just learning about all yeah. this stuff, uh, independent of where it goes. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a lot of fun. Um, and so, as long as, you know, as we talked about before, like, as long as you understand what it is, right, and don't exactly. treat it for more than what it is. Um, it's important for psychological purposes. So, love it.